0: Today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to finish up the, tr- the chapter. And in the first part, we saw the six trials of Christ and what he endured. And today, we're going to see the uh, account of the actual crucifixion. Now, we're going to jump in, starting with verse 32. It says, Now as they came out, they found the man of Cyrene, Simon by name, Him they compelled to bear his cross, Jesus' cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is the place of a skull, we'll stop there. So where do we leave off uh, in the beginning of the chapter? We left off with the Roman soldiers mocking Christ, abusing him, leading him from the praetorium out to Golgotha, out of the city. And if you're familiar with the terrain over there, it's a higher elevation, uh, crucified People would be up there on those crosses, and it served a dual purpose for the Roman government. Number one, to execute uh, evildoers or uh, those that were enemies of the state. And at the same time, it was an incredible deterrent to those coming and going from Jerusalem to see, uh, don't mess with Rome. So it was a little bit of an advertisement for them as well. Uh, we, now we look at Simon here. Simon is a man from Cyrene, which is North Africa. So we look at this man. He's an African man. He's, he's there for the Passover, and uh, it's possible that we could say for him to come all the way up there with the crowds and probably the financial expenses that he had to be a convert, at least to the monotheistic God, Judaism. Now in Mark's gospel, and I'd love to just paint a really good picture for us, bringing all the scriptures into account so that we have a great understanding and a background of what's going on. Mark's gospel tells us that he, Simon, was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And in Romans 16, we know that the apostle Paul knew Rufus. He was well known to the early church. So here's your picture. Now, Simon is a bystander and the Romans are compelling him to carry um, Jesus's cross so, and, and when Jesus says, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone asks you to go one mile, uh, go with him too. And this is probably what he's referring to. By Roman law, if you felt a tap on your shoulder and you turned around, either by a spear or by a sword, uh, the Roman soldier would be standing behind you and he can say, carry my pack a mile. Or he can ask you to do some type of short-term tasks and whatever you're doing, you had to drop it and follow those orders. So... In this case, he probably got a tap on the shoulder by a sword and the Roman soldier says, he's struggling, go help him carry that cross. Now imagine what's going through Simon's mind. He's just there to worship God. And now he's in this, in his mind, probably this circus, this arena where he's in this public stage now. And now he's got to carry the cross and it's probably embarrassing to him. He might've said, why me? I'm not a criminal. Now, understand that the, if you look at a replica over there, and it was, they were a lot bigger because they were made out of trees, uh, that the stipes would be the vertical piece and probably would be up on the hill, they were very heavy, and a, a, a scourged victim could not carry that. But the patibulum, which is the horizontal piece, which was something that the criminals or the ones condemned to death were required to carry from the, um, the uh, site of where they were condemned all the way up that hill probably being about 80 pounds or so. Now remember, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. The Romans were just unwittingly uh, fulfilling prophecy that God spoke about many years ago. So what happens is... You can figure that this could have taken maybe 20 to 30 minutes, and 20, 30 minutes later, this guy changes because we see the scripture. You know, he, gives, he has these two boys, uh, they grow up, they become Christians. So how did 20 to 30 minutes turn into this guy becoming a believer? Well, give me, permit me a little artistic liberty here. So you've got Simon, probably not happy about this, and he's got to carry this thing, and, and Jesus is right alongside of him, and they're walking their way up to Golgotha. And I don't know what conversation took place between Jesus and Simon, but we knew, do know that Jesus always ministered to others. There's actually a scripture in Luke where a bunch of women accost Jesus, and they're, they're tearful, they're, they're sobbing. You know, it's, 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 it's breaking their heart. But Jesus says, ladies, don't worry about me. I'm concerned about you. Because if they, they do this in the greenwood while I'm here, what happens in the drywood? So even through Christ's worst time in his life, he still ministered to others. And I have no doubt that he also ministered to Simon. So there's some type of maybe short conversation that takes place, maybe a look, and I'm going to go through this a little bit later with the robber, but what happens is, um, by the time they get up to the, to the hill, I could just picture Simon, the Roman soldier, saying, okay, your, your mission is fulfilled, go back to what you were doing. I could just picture Simon just stopping and, and just watching, and then Jesus, as they're nailing him to the cross, just looking at Simon with this look of love. And whatever happens in those 20 minutes, this man becomes a believer. Jesus ministers to him like he ministers to everyone else, like he ministers to us today. Very powerful. So, so what happens? You know, this, this demeanor probably changes. He becomes a believer. But this is the beauty of our Lord. And we're going to see this, that if you spend enough time with Christ, that you'll change. There, there, you have no choice. It's just the, the nature of things. Now, in Psalm 138.2, it says that God's word is magnified above all his name. So today you could say, well, but I don't see Jesus, but I don't see him tangibly here, but we have his word. And according to the scripture, that the word is magnified above all. It's held in a very high regard. You see, we talk to make conversation. We speak out of awkward moments. We use filler. We speak into the air. When God speaks, he doesn't speak for no reason. Every word that comes out of his mouth is something that we need to pay attention to. And I love that. So I've been asked this question before. Every once in a while, pastor, what if this type of person comes into church? What are you going to do? Nothing. (laughs) Let him sit there. If he's not causing a disturbance, if he's not a ruckus, if he's not being disruptive, let God's word minister to him. It's less that I have to do, and certainly if I have to do less work, I'm happy about that. So I just let God's word work on a person. Isaiah 55 tells us that when God's word goes forth, like the precipitation cycles, God's word does not come back void. 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Now, if we take all Gospels into account, which I like to do, there was a few ingredients. The different other Gospels have other ingredients mixed in here. So this is a concoction. It's an analgesic. It's an act of mercy. And it was also prophesied in Psalm 69, 21, uh, many centuries before Now. Again, we can see this. You know, in in Florida, when they had the electric chair, you would always see somebody would get electrocuted. They would have a group of pro-capital punishment people, maybe mocking, like you would see here, and and rejoicing. And then you would have another group, a separate group of those who were trying to show an act of mercy. But what they would do is, usually the ladies, they would mix this potion up with sour wine and gall and a few other things, and they would take a sponge and soak it. And then they would take a, a, a reed, And and push it through and then they would hoist it up to the person being crucified. And what they would do is they couldn't touch it, they couldn't take a cup of water, but they would, uh, with their mouths, they would latch onto the sponge and suck that stuff in so it would cause them to numb some of the awful pain of crucifixion understand that the nails would go through probably the carpal bones and uh, compress or or sever the median nerve which would send shock waves up the arm to the shoulder to the neck and then with the feet and the ankles there's the anterior tibial nerve that goes down the leg and runs in front of the ankle and when you would stick a spike through that it would send shock waves through the leg so couple that with the suffocation factor and the pain and the scourging it was a brutal brutal way to die. However, Jesus would not take the potion. You see, in our culture, we're so uh, unused to that because we are, I hate to say, Americans, we're a pill-popping generation. We pop a pill for everything. Uh, Any little bit of pain or sorrow or problems in our lives, we're popping pills. You know, we want to go to the doctor and get a prescription. However, because we're a mind-numbing society, we don't want to feel things. We don't want to feel pain. However, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12, 22 says, for the joy set before him, the fact that we would be saved through this act of crucifixion, uh, that taking the sins of the world upon him, it says that he endured the cross and he despised the shame. You see, Jesus wanted to be fully aware of everything that was going on. When he died for our sins, this was a once in eternity. Think of how long eternity is. You know, there's not enough zeros at the end. It just keeps going. Uh, So, for once in eternity, Jesus Christ had the opportunity to love us so much that he died for our sins. He wasn't going to let anything cloud his thinking, his judgment, his feelings. That's how much he loves you and I. Okay? Very important to understand. And I'll tell you, I do come to strangers and strangers come into this church and ask me questions and, about God's love and I, you know, I talk to them like I've always known them. I talk to them about how much God loves them. I talk to them about how important they are, how unique, how special. And some of them look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, you don't even know me. You just met me. And my response is, I don't have to know you because I, all I know is what God's word says about you. You see, I'm here to show you. I'm here to take your little hand and take God's big hand and put them together because that's what he wants from us. He wants that reconciliation. So I don't have to know what your past is. I don't know how, what, what kind of person you are. I'm a sinner too. But I do know what God's word says about you and how he feels about you. And we can see that by what he did in the crucifixion. Verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, quote, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So they cast lots for his clothing. Probably the Roman soldiers didn't get paid a whole lot, and this was one of their uh, trophies that they would take maybe the jewelry or the clothing. But it's interesting, Psalm 22, 18 tells us that this would happen. I just want to stop for a minute because this portion, it's only half a chapter, is filled with, with, and I keep saying Psalm 22, I'll go into Isaiah 53. These are all fulfilled prophecies. Now let me just, let's think about this for a moment. We're talking 800 roughly eight centuries ago in Isaiah 53, and a millennium ago, uh, with, or from that point in Psalm 22, or many of the Psalms. So how, is that, how does that register to us? And I say these, throw these numbers out, yeah, yeah, Pastor Joe, that's really nice. We, Our country is not even 300 years old, do you realize that? When we think of the Revolutionary War and we see the movies about it, their clothes were different, their warfare was different, their relationships were different, right? Uh, their farming versus industrial. And we say, wow, that was an eternity ago. That's not even 300 years ago. So let's think about us as Americans. Now we add another 700 years on that, and God says, well, let me. this is how God does prophecy. He goes, let me tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Let me tell you what's going to happen next year. Let me tell you what's going to happen 1,000 years in the future. So we actually get the benefit of seeing a lot of these prophecies fulfilled. He was speaking about crucifixion when crucifixion didn't exist. You realize that? I mean, he speaks about, God speaks about things in his word, about technology today. And I submit to you satellite technology in, in the book of Revelation, where everyone on the earth sees an event at the same time, not possible, before satellite technology. How does that happen? The earth is round. The, the naysayers years ago might have said, see, the Bible's full of inconsistencies. That's impossible. That's impossible. Okay, well, in our century, it is possible. Verse 36. Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now they kept watch. Um, probably, is it possible? Well, most likely they did this because uh, those that were crucified, if the soldiers left, maybe family members would try to take them down and, and try to bind their wounds and hopefully that they would live. So the, the soldiers had to guard any person who was crucified. Certainly with Jesus, uh, maybe the, you know, the uh, rumors of the miracles and such, maybe they were concerned that he might try to take himself down. But of course that didn't happen. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him the same thing. So you have these, and we're going to go over, um, we're going to speak about the bystanders. But, you know, listen, it wasn't them on the cross. So it was funny to them or it was, you know, they mocked him. Uh, The religious leaders who were at enmity with him felt this was, this was the chance that they get to finally get rid of them and the people will start following us again. They lowered themselves as supposedly spiritual men to do this, uh, but we're going to see how people start to change. Verse 42, he saved others, him he cannot save. All I can say is, thank God, thank God that he didn't succumb to the insults and the reviling and say, you know what, Father, these people are just insolent. I mean, they're unappreciative Where's all the people I did miracles for? You know, where's the guy that I resurrected? They're not here. That's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. But he didn't, right? He took the abuse. Imagine God of God of gods, God, uh, you know, the one who created everything, is hanging on a cross. When we really start to think about that, we realize, I'm so glad. You know what? We know what kept him on that cross? It wasn't the nails, it was his love. His love was the glue that plastered him onto that cross for you and I. It's good stuff to look at. I do want to look at one of the robbers now. We see that there was two robbers, and apparently they start off reviling him, and they, you know, mob mentality. The crowd is shouting. There's these two guys on the right and the left. They're shouting insults. But I want to show you something about a change of heart of one of the robbers. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 23, starting with verse 39. Luke's gospel adds the change of heart of one of the robbers that were crucified with Christ. It says, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. So the second person I want to look at is this one robber who starts out reviling, maybe goes along with the crowd, it happens. But like Simon the Cyrene, which we just looked at, He spends a short amount with Jesus, and he puts his faith in Christ for his salvation. Amazing. What was it about Jesus that had such a profound effect on everyone that he came in contact with? Now, I'm going to make up a word today, and I don't think this word exists, but that's the only thing I could think of, because there's some things about God and his nature that we we think about and we read about, and we can't really put our fingers on it. There's something about Jesus that the Son of Godness exuded from him. If you were there at that time, you could not help but be affected by his what he exuded. Even in the worst time of his life, feeling definitely the pain, because we read about the struggles that he went through, even pushing through all that was the son of Godness. And that affected this one robber where, again, what do they have a conversation with? They're both condemned to death. Could it be that When you're crucified, no doubt, you know, if you're crucified, you don't care. You're already going to die anyway. You hate the Roman government. Maybe you're cursing. Maybe you're reviling. Maybe you're spitting. Maybe you're screaming. Maybe you're just, um, I don't know what could be happening. But there was something about Jesus that he noticed that was different. Some of the words that Jesus spoke that I'm going to go through while he was on the cross. And this guy has a change of heart. And like the like the robbers, anyone today who comes in contact with His Word uh, cannot help or cannot be unfazed by it. I'll tell you, just give you an example. And I've done many funerals, and you know, I I think I'm getting good at reading people after a while. But you know, when you go to a funeral, everyone's looking at you, and they just they're looking at you. They they don't know what to expect, and they want to hear about their loved one, and they want to hear words of encouragement. So they have this blank, neutral look on their face. As you start talking and you start reading the word, uh, those, many of them, will just their, their eyebrows will raise, they may tilt their head, and they're listening very intently on what you're saying, especially when the scripture is read. Now, I've had a few occasions in funerals where there's at least one person, I, I remember one specifically, that he went from a neutral position to his eyes being furrowed, and he had an angry look on his face, and for the rest of the, the, the time I was speaking, he looked at the wall. He could not look at me. Because, and listen, I I pray that God softens his heart, but the bottom line is the word of God will change everyone. You're dead if the word of God isn't doing anything to you. You're completely dead inside. You're just a rote machine going through this world because it is either going to cause you to break down and come to grips with your mortality or you will say, you know what? I don't want this. I'm not ready for this. I'm here to hear good things about my loved ones. Why, you, why, why do I have to be exposed to this? You see? You'll either have a vitriol. You'll, have, you'll be vitriolic about what you're receiving, or you'll receive it with joy. It'll start to work on you. So we have three crosses on the hill. We have two robbers and Jesus in the middle. Did you ever think of this, that the middle cross should have been for Barabbas? Remember we covered that last Sunday? So this is what happens. These two robbers are talking as if they know each other. The one's talking to the other one as if he knows that he deserves what they're getting. So they must know each other in some respect. Now remember, in the early morning, the religious leaders came to Pontius Pilate. Barabbas was chained. He was ready to be crucified at some point. And because of the religious leaders changing the court docket, so to speak, and pushing this one up sooner... Uh, Jesus now takes center stage, and Pilate, thinking that they're going to release Jesus, says, well, who do you want me to release? Well, we'll take Barabbas. Wow. Uh, Pilate didn't expect that. So now Jesus may be standing in for Barabbas in more ways than one. Definitely physically, uh, absolutely spiritually or symbolically. And I'll tell you this, when Jesus was in that center cross, he stood in my place as well, and he stood in your place. Don't spurn that gift. Don't hear it and walk out of here and then just just put it out of your mind. You need to meditate on this. Your whole entire salvation and eternity depends on this. So this is what's going on. And this is what's called a substitutionary death. Again, it's hard for many to understand that a crucified Christ, Deuteronomy 21, even the Apostle Paul says to the Jew, it's a stumbling block because Deuteronomy 21 says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. I just was speaking to a Jewish physician this week, and I said, you have to understand what that means. Yes, he was accursed, but he was accursed so you and I could have life. Something has to be done about the sin issue. We like to brush things under the rug, but God can't. He can't not deal with the sin issue. So Christ stood in our place, took those sins, even the future sins that you're going to commit for the next few decades if you're around that long, he died for those sins as well. Hard to comprehend. I can't explain everything that's in the scripture, but I do the best I can. Right? Thank you. Now, let's look at this really, a, a doctrinal statement comes out of this whole crucifixion, especially with the robber. So the robber turns to Christ. Uh, you know, I'm sure that he repented. Uh, he asked Christ about taking him, you know, for, for, for salvation to be with him. And Jesus assures him that that day he would be in paradise. Now, did you notice that the, the thief on the cross couldn't say to the Roman soldiers, hey, listen, you got to take these spikes out for a few minutes because I got to get baptized because I can't be saved unless I'm baptized. Okay. Didn't happen. See, this is where unscriptural doc- doctrines come in and they get really annihilated. I've heard you have to be baptized. If you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Baptism is a commandment but this man didn't get baptized, and he was saved. Um, uh, salvation by works. Hey, hey, soldiers, got to take the spikes out. I got to do a few good deeds, uh, help somebody walk across the street, then you can put me back up here. Didn't do it, right? Salvation by works doesn't work. Jesus only. Salvation through the church. You know, hey, maybe it's time that I should consider myself a Wesleyan or a Calvary guy, or you know, no, not there. What about? Salvation, only if you're speaking in tongues. That's a, an example of your salvation. No, it's not. It's a gift. Some people have it, some people don't. So this is really the beauty of verse-by-verse teaching because it takes some of these unscriptural doctrines and it shows that you know, they just don't hold any water. This guy couldn't do anything but believe in Jesus for his salvation. That's the beauty of, of God's salvation. 45. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. So Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Now understand, this wasn't what we understand, uh, p.m., 9 p.m., 6 to 9. It was, in their time, um, it was from, from 12 to 3. Right? They, they quartered the day. It wasn't like the way we start our days. They really started their days uh, from like 6 a.m. or when the sun would come up. So, Some have tried to explain this, but the truth is, this was uh, the time period of a full moon. So it couldn't have been an eclipse. Now, some will, again, try to explain it away, well, by natural events. But there was nothing, if you go, um, there's a program that you can get on your computer and you can go back literally 2,000 years and look at every day and see what the constellation looked like. No eclipse, nothing there. Uh, You can't explain it away by natural means. I would just say, God was angry. And he had every right to be angry. And he said to them, basically, or I'm paraphrasing, and I don't want to speak for him if it's not in the scripture, but you want darkness? Here's darkness. Spiritual darkness. This is a reflection of who you are. It's bad enough that he has the Son of God has to be humiliated, but now you're going to mock him on top of it? Remember, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. God of justice. And we know even before the 10th plague of Egypt that was, there was darkness in the land. So, so dark that it was painful. Right? And this was a, a true darkness that settled across the land. And you could just imagine a pin drop here because what, what's going on? What's going on? All the chatter. Now, even the atheist today who likes to you know, have the free speech and have the, uh, to, to be able to say things without immediate judgment, uh, they're enjoying God's creation. So you look outside and there's a change of seasons, the sun comes out, the flowers, the animals, the birds chirping, anything that's beautiful out there, the atheist right now is enjoying that. Okay, but what the atheist doesn't understand is they don't want God. If they really don't repent, they're not going to have God. And it's going to be brutal darkness. It's going to be brutal separation. And all the things that they enjoyed in this world, hobbies that they had or whatever, it's all going to go away. So even those who mock God now are still enjoying the fruits of what he created, the fruits of his labor. Did you ever think of that? Right? Just a little bit of taste of what's going to happen. Very small, though. Now, he says, this is interesting, because some people will look at that and say, well, this must be proof that he couldn't have been who he said he was. He said God forsook him. Okay, first of all, this was prophesied, again, back into Psalm uh, Psalm 22. So this was prophesied, uh, but at the same time, he's fulfilling prophecy, and he's, he's making a point. Everyone's getting a heads up as he says this. So what's going on? All of a sudden, he says this. What, what are we missing? So the supernatural events, Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? The father, at some point, had to turn away from the son because of all that sin. It's bad enough that the son had to deal with it, but uh, the father had to had turn as the judge at that point. Now, there are some things in the scripture that are just mind-benders. Can you picture the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit discussing the redemption of mankind? Did they ever say, well, why don't we just get rid of them? They're insolent creatures. They're disrespectful. They're rebellious. They all had the same idea because they are one at this idea of, well, why don't we send the Son down there to live as a man, as one of those creatures, and then let him be crucified and and bear the sins of the world? Again, these are like kind of mind-benders. How did that work out? It must have been really difficult to to have that discussion, and and I think that we should see how far God went to to, to allow this to happen to himself to redeem you and I. I think it's all through this message. So Jesus makes a few statements while he's being crucified, and I believe this reveals his priorities, and we should look at this as well. Now, taking all four Gospels into account, I try to put it in order of the events that it was said. So kind of like a chronological order based on all four Gospels. So here goes. First thing he said while on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even at the worst time of the Son of God's life, he still showed mercy. Now, if he could show mercy in that situation, then definitely we could show mercy. Two, he says to his earthly mother, woman, Mary, behold your son, meaning John the disciple, and John, behold your mother. He's on the cross, right? You would think that if it was, if was any of us having to go through that, we would just think about ourselves the whole time because it would just be miserable. So what does he do? He has concerns for the physical needs of others. Now, if he's putting the disciple or his mother in uh, the disciple's house, then Joseph, his uh, earthly father, must have been dead by this time. So he's, he's preparing, you know, his mother to be taken care of. Um, three, to the robber, he says, assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. He's concerned for the spiritual needs as others, as well as the physical needs. And that should be our priority as well. He was saving souls right up to the very end. <laughs> Even he was saving souls while he was on earth, doing the miracles, right up until the end, before his last breath on the cross, he was saving souls. And that should say something to us. What are we doing with our time? Are we redeeming the time as believers? We have the message of love to the world. Are we giving it out? Right? Now, some look at it as a work. Well, I don't want to be forced. I don't want to be pressured. But you have to look at it for what it is. It's the gift of love. I don't want to give out the gift of love. That doesn't mean that we're going to do a great job. It doesn't mean we have to follow the street evangelists. It just means that God will use us right, in the way that he's prepared us to give out that message of love fourth thing he said my god my god why have you forsaken me again proving there was something going on at this point between him and the father fifth thing he said was i thirst he finally took the drink from the sponge after the substitutionary death was over his needs came last you know where do our needs come in in our lives when we think about others when we think about our priorities when we think our responsibilities Am I always first? My needs, my needs, and then I'll worry about everyone else. Got to take out, you know, look out for number one. Mm-mm. Not him. Sixth thing he said is, it is finished. In the Greek, the word is tetelstai. Used in two different uh, uh, venues. Number one for accounting. The debt has been paid in full. It's been satisfied. Also in the military. Mission accomplished. We've, we've completed what we set forth to do. All right? So, What we see is that Jesus completed everything he needed to complete. So when those preach, well, Jesus is good, but you need this as well. No, no, no. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. When it comes to sin, Jesus said, I got that covered. I took care of it. Nothing else needs to be added to my sacrifice. Anything that does get added by any church or organization is an insult to God. It's a slap in the faith. It's like, God, you did 99.9%, but there's a little bit that we have to do. No, no. It is finished. Seventh thing he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You know, Pilate marveled that Jesus had died so soon. You know what I see when I read this? I see that Jesus gave up his life. Remember, he said, No man takes my life, I lay it down willingly. Jesus gave it up. So when the substitutionary death, the substitution, you know, the penalty for our sins was paid, there was no reason for Jesus to be on that cross anymore. He's like, Father, I commend my spirit. He had the power over his life, and he had the power over his death. That's why the soldiers didn't have to break his legs to stop him from pushing up so that he could be suffocated to death. And that's what happened to the other ones. The Bible was clear, it was prophesied that his legs would not be broken. This stuff is mind-blowing when you start to go through it. So it is finished. I'm done. I don't need to be here anymore. That's it. 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, which is a euphemism for who have died. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him where they are looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Josephs, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So what is this, this veil? Um, in some scriptures it's translated curtain. Okay, we're not talking about a wedding veil or a shower curtain. We're talking about something that in the temple of God where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood sacrifice, sprinkling of the blood to make atonement for the sins of himself, even though he was a holy man, he was still a sinner, and then for the people. And there had to be something that had to separate that Holy of Holies from the rest of the place, because if someone walked in there by accident, they would have died. If it was an accident, they meandered in there, that would have been problematic, okay? So this curtain had to be several inches thick, And Josephus says it was up to 60 feet high. The the temple was huge. It was grandiose. From the top to the bottom. That means that God ripped it from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top. And what God was saying was, now, you can walk in there. Knock yourself out. You can do a tour through there. Because when my son died on the cross, you don't have to go in there anymore with the blood of lambs. That was only a type of the ultimate sacrifice where Jesus, as the ultimate high priest, offered himself as the priest and also as the sacrifice, fulfilling both roles. So that, that, it, was, it was just torn. And when you can only surmise that they uh, stitched it back up, that they put it back together. Uh, so, so the Lord made sure in AD 66 through 70 that it was, the temple was just completely destroyed. He allowed it to happen. Right? It's, it's gonna, not going to be anymore through the, to the, to the temple. It's going to be through my son Jesus. Verse 53, this is interesting. There was an earth that the earthquake and there was those that had came, come out of the, um, the graves and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I find this fascinating because if you look at um, typology, if you look at uh, maybe uh, symbolism in the scripture, when you had a, uh, if you had a, a field of, of grain or some type of thing that you planted, you would count on God. We, we covered this in the Harvest Festival for it to grow. And what would happen is when, when, those, when they started coming up and they were ripening, you would take the best of the best, the first fruits, and you wouldn't keep it for yourself. You would offer it to God. God gets first. And then after that, you would take care of the main harvest. You would harvest it for yourself, your family, maybe to sell. And you would also leave a little bit in the back for those that maybe couldn't afford. It was a great social program because the poor people could just come and take freely. And there was nothing wrong with the stuff. Now, this really, uh, Jesus' resurrection and the, the saints coming out of the graves upon his resurrection is the first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection. The main harvest is what we speak about a lot with the rapture or the harpazo, where the Lord resurrecting us at any, any moment. It's his decision. And when we look at the tribulation, after the majority of the church has gone to be with him, there are a few left in the tribulation, the tribulation saints. They're kind of like the gleanings. So it's really neat. You see three stages of of the harvest of resurrection, starting with Christ and these saints that appeared to many in Jerusalem. Now, in Luke's gospel, um, let me just jump into 54 to what the centurion said. He admitted, truly, he sees what's happening. He sees what's going on. And he says, truly, this was the son of God. Now, in Luke's gospel, the centurion glorified God. And attested to Jesus as the son. So this is the third person that I want to look at that came in contact with Christ and changed. Okay? And the fourth person or the fourth people are the crowds. In Luke's gospel, again, he gives a little bit more about the crowds. He says, the whole crowd beat their breasts and they departed. And that was a sign of sorrow or mourning. So maybe some of them that were mocking Jesus, uh, laughing, insulting him, all of a sudden, by the end of this crucifixion, everyone, it says the whole crowd, is, is mourning and, and they're in sorrow and they depart. So that's the four groups there. So whether it's Simon the Cyrene, the robber, the centurion, or the crowds, if you spend enough time with Jesus, you will be changed. You will be changed. 57. Now when evening had come, there was a, There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. We know from scripture that Joseph of Arimathea was also part of the council, the Sanhedrin. They were the the governing body that not only uh, had this kangaroo court, so to speak, of Jesus, but they also condemned him to death. And what we understand from Joseph is we can surmise that he was disillusioned with the spiritual system. Although he was a member, no doubt he did not consent to this, and the Bible's clear about that. So he still retained that position, but he was a dissenter in their majority. So he, uh, he actually fulfills another scripture, Isaiah 53, 9. Uh, again, roughly eight centuries before, where he would be uh, cr- crucified with the uh, malefactors, but with the rich, he would be buried. So Joseph of Marathea, uh, you know, most people couldn't afford what he had set up, and he, this was his way of honoring the Lord Jesus. 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how this deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This is, you know, we we have things in our government that are similar. Uh, There's the great uh, seal of the state of New Jersey. Uh, The federal government has a seal. So many governments, state, local, federal, they have these seals. And the Roman government, what they would do is, well, they would send the soldiers there. They would guard the tomb, and they would have a clay or a wax and put it between the stone and the, the body of the tomb and press it in there and then take the seal of the Roman government and impress it in there. And that was basically saying, if you open this, you're going to get killed, you know, under the penalty of death. So they had the seal, and they had the Roman uh, guards to guard it as well. Now, this would have been a problem for the Jewish leadership and the Roman government if a prophet, real or contrived, rose from the dead, or stories circulated that he rose from the dead. So this is why they did this. They couldn't have that. Why is that? Because if it got out that, (laughs) if it got out that, Jesus rose from the dead, then the people would say, you know what, there's not much of a life here on this earth. I'm really banking on the afterlife. So now capital punishment, crucifixion, would really have no deterrent effect because those would be willing to give their lives in service to Christ. Now, ironically, that's what happened. Christ rose from the dead. Christianity would have been... You know how many splinter groups there were of Judaism back then that the Romans just snuffed out? We see this in the book of Acts. There's a few groups that he gives... Uh, The author. So the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to so many was the reason why even under the intense persecution and and just having fun with throwing him into the arena and have the wild beast tear him apart, people will be like, yeah, I don't care because I saw Jesus rise from the dead. So this was the the issue that they were trying to prevent and of course they couldn't. Now I'm just going to, you know, some have a, a problem with the substitutionary death. Some have a problem with the whole sin issue. And I talk to a lot of people and I ask them, whatever religion they're part of, I say, so what are you going to do about your sins? You know, when you go to to meet God, how are you going to stand before him and say, and petition him and say, you know what? I belong in there with you. How do you do it? The more you understand about a holy God and a righteous God and a God of justice, you can't do it. Let me give you a good example that I didn't come up with, but I wish I had. Uh, It's about a judge, a righteous judge. Uh, He follows the law to the letter of the law. And let's just say, you and I, we go before the judge. And we've lived a a spotless life, which is not possible, but let me just add for the sake of adding. And you go before this judge because one point in your life, somebody got you so enraged that you lost control and you beat the person up and they fell and hit their head and they died. So it's this terrible crime. Now you're before the judge and you say to the judge, this is my defense. I've never committed a crime. I've never committed a sin up until this point. And from this point, I promise I'm going to be good, and I'm never going to commit another sin. So therefore, I think you need to let me go. Now, what judge in his right mind in any country would say, well, there's the the victim's family, there's the the whole court packed with people. Yeah, I I buy it. Goodbye. Not going to happen. So why do we think when it comes to salvation, people say, well, I'm a good person. Well, God will forgive me. You've offended God. You've committed incredible, heinous crimes in his name. We've thought things that have been outrageous. So I can tell you the truth. I've committed more than one sin in my life. There's a whole pile of them. And there's some waiting for me in the next few years that I have to deal with. God had to satisfy his righteous justice because he is a righteous judge. He would go against everything that he is if he just let us go. So there had to be a payment for that sin. And Jesus provided that payment. We couldn't even hang on the cross because we're stained with sin. It would have had no effect. It had to be Jesus. So I'm just going to say this, that the Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin unless you've trusted as Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Simon the Cyrene changed dramatically in only maybe a half an hour's time. The robber changed dramatically in maybe only a few hours. Same thing with the centurion and the crowd. So I would just ask you today, are you ready? Are you ready to lay down your will? Believe what God says in his word and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we we thank you.